in a remarkable way the passage that we're looking at this morning in Genesis chapter 37 actually extends to that vision of global mission. It won't be a readily apparent as we read Genesis 37 this morning. You'll think, maybe think to yourself, how does this text have to do with the ends of the earth? But I hope by the time that we finish together today, it'll be patently clear that believers in Middle Tennessee, believers in Uganda, Africa in the 21st century, have in large part to thank the Lord for His providence as unfolded here in Genesis chapter 37 for the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the world. You know that's you and that's me. We are the uttermost parts of the world. And with that in view, we want to give our attention over to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to pick up our reading this morning in verse 12 of this text. And we will extend all the way to the end in verse 36. Now his brothers, that's Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him To kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and uh, we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he, that is Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it that we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, 
this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, having heard this word in the presence of your people, with the attending of your Holy Spirit, we would now ask that you would come and move about us. That you would take this word and its preaching into our lives and into our hearts. That you would touch us deeply with the truthfulness of this word. That you would drive us into beautiful and glorious communion with you. That we would find not just the story of Joseph here. We would find the very story of redemption itself. Come and meet us here and lead us, we ask it. In Christ's name. Amen. There may be certain things as you think about your life, plans that you've made that, well, how should we say it, just haven't turned out like you hoped they would. I have a few of those. I can think of a few road trips right now that didn't turn out the way I hoped that they would. I can think of more than my fair share of housing projects that didn't turn out how I wished that they would, some of which still remain undone to this day, much to the chagrin of my wife. Such is the nature sometimes of our plans, isn't it? Good plans, good intentions, as far as we can tell, um, this is the way things should go. And Sometimes those plans don't just not turn out. They, they turn out much worse than we would imagine. In fact, sometimes they become, as we will sometimes relay, oh my, it's been a nightmare. <laughs> you ever said that? Maybe about your day, <laughs> your week, or a certain trip or an experience that you've gone through. We thought it was going to be the best thing ever, and it turned out to be an utter nightmare. That seemed to be the appropriate way to describe the passage that's before us in Genesis 37. Because we have here the dreamer, <laughs> Joseph, who has just come out of a, of a soaring revelation from God. A 17-year-old young man, the favored son of Jacob, has, while he slept at night, dreamed of sheaves that have gathered around. His sheaf standing above all of the other sheaves. The other sheaves bowing down to the ground before him. Those sheaves representing the brothers. The brothers mentioned here in Genesis 37. Or the second of the dreams. All of the dreams in the Joseph story as you'll see as we go along come in pairs. 
And we'll talk more about why they come in pairs in the days to come. But the second dream that Joseph experienced was one of the sun and the moon and, and the 11 stars represented by his brothers bowing down to him, Joseph. This glorious dream, he was clearly filled to the brim with hope on because he came down right after those dreams happened. You remember this, eating, eating breakfast with his brothers. He wanted to tell them before they finished you know, their, their bacon and eggs. He wanted to tell them about his dream that he had had. And you know, not surprisingly, they didn't take kindly to it. But he, however, was pretty excited. The chosen one, this favored one by his father, has now been none other than favored by God himself. He has been revealed to be the one of power, authority, one of which his whole family will ultimately serve. Sounds wonderful. I bet he didn't see this passage coming. I bet he didn't see this coming. The unfolding of his life was, well, you could, you could see the graph. It was going this direction. Except that it doesn't. This, this planned revelation, this dream of a future, <laughs> turned out to be a mess of a present. This dream of what would be a glorious future turned into a present nightmare. As I was reflecting on it this week and reading a variety of different passages, I stumbled across a passage many of you in this room know, many of you have probably memorized this passage. It's Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. As I read it this week, it really was in other reading, not preparing at all for our time together now. I read it and I just, that's it. That's the story of, uh, of Genesis 37. Well, what does Proverbs 19, 21 say? Well, listen to this word. Many, Solomon writes, are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Uh, many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now if you look at Genesis 37, we see many plans of the minds of men in this passage. But you know what's glorious? is all of the plans of the minds of the men in this passage are no match for the purpose of the Lord that stands. We want to look at it under that heading. We want to look at the plans of men in this passage, and there are a number of them. And we want to look then at the purpose of God that will stand in this passage. And I think that you'll see who really is the one who ascends on high. Well, it starts with a plan, doesn't it? I mean, the opening verse, verse 12, is Jacob's plan. Here is Jacob coming to Joseph, his, his favored son, who probably is lounging somewhere in his multicolored royal robe, as the other brothers are out there right in the field, keeping watch over the flock. He comes to Joseph and he says, listen, now remind me, uh, the brothers are where exactly? Where, where are they pasturing the flock? Oh yes, Shechem. They're pasturing in, in Shechem. Now some of you, because you remember the story of the, the book of Genesis and you, you remember, well, of course you remember every sermon that's preached here at Cornerstone as well. 
You remember that back in the spring, we looked at Genesis 34, right? Right? Genesis 34. Yes, yes. I see those head nods. Genesis 34. And you'll remember that in Genesis 34, it was in Shechem where the son of Hamar the Hivite actually sexually defiled Dinah, Jacob's daughter. And it was there where the brilliant sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, decided that the best thing for them to do in retaliation is to kill all the men of the city and plunder all of the city and take all of their their goods and their possessions. And so you see why Jacob might be a little worried that they're pasturing in Shechem. If I could venture it this way, they have a reputation there. And it's not good. It's a violent place. They've been a violent people towards those people. He says to Joseph, Joseph, I'd like you to go check on them. In fact, I want you to see if it's well with your brothers and with their flock. Verse 14. Now, I I couldn't help in, in looking and exploring the passage this week to, to smile a little bit when I, when I read verse 14. But please go see, uh, Joseph, if it's well with your, your brothers. Because the word there for, for well is, um, well, it's shalom. It's the word for peace in the Old Testament. And if you were with us last week, looking at the first 11 verses of Genesis 37, you might remember in verse 4. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you might glance up to verse 4 of Genesis chapter 37. Because you'll actually get a window into the kind of relationship that Joseph has with all of his brothers. You'll remember that they hated Joseph because he was the favored son. And when he began talking about the dreams, they didn't like him any better. In fact, they liked him a lot worse. Uh, to the degree that the text actually says in verse 4 that they hated him so much they couldn't speak shalom to him. They couldn't speak peace to him. <laughs> now, interestingly, here's Joseph at the bidding of his father being asked to go see if they're at peace. It's a bit ironic that this um, 17-year-old Joseph is being asked by his father Jacob to go to Shechem Shechem is 50 miles away from Hebron. This is not Franklin to Brentwood. This is a long journey. He is a young man. And he is being sent to the violent city of Shechem to go check on brothers who are known to be violent and who don't like him at all. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. But as I look at this text, I think to myself, that has disaster written all over it. This is a terrible plan. Why is Jacob doing this? For all we know, I mean, there's no mention of a a caravan, anybody going with him. Apparently, he's he's alone, as best we know from the text. Is, Is Jacob so clueless that he has no idea what's really going on in his family? The tensions between his son Joseph and his and, and his other brothers. Well, it's possible, but the text doesn't explore that. doesn't indulge those questions at all. In fact, it gets even a little bit more confusing, if you're okay with me getting a little more confusing. Um, Joseph seems eager to go. L- like, like weirdly eager. Uh, if you look at verse 13, when his father calls to him and says to him, listen, I want you to, I want you to go and to check on the, the boys down in 
in, in Shechem. What, is, what does Joseph say? Here I am, right? You'd almost hear it, right? I, th- I think it's chins elevated just slightly. Here I am, Father, right? It's actually a construction that's used for prophets in the Old Testament, answering the very call of God. It's the language that's used in Genesis 22 of Abraham when God speaks to him directly and he says to God, here I am. This is a, this is a bold declaration of identification and of acceptance of the mission that his father is sending him on. It's confusing. You would think that he could care less whether his brothers are well or not. But it seems as if he's, he's eager to go. What's going on here? What's happening in the midst of this, this text? Well, I think there's some clues. I think that there's clues with regards to Jacob's love for his son Joseph, having kept in mind the glorious revelation that the Lord has already given him as authority over the other brothers, the son of his old age, Joseph, is sort of the Isaac of the Jacob and son story. He's the chosen one. He's the favored one. He's the one God's spoken to. He chooses Joseph to go check on his brothers. Well, that makes sense. He's already had a vision of going and being one who's authority over his brothers. We'll send him out, 17-year-old, 50 miles away, to check on his brother. And we see an eagerness here in the spirit of, of Joseph to step towards that task. I'd like to suggest something of pride. Presumption. You remember how eager he was to share his revelations to his brothers. You remember how he came to his father in the previous passage to tell a bad report about his brothers. Oh, yes, Father, here I am, your good son, the favored one. I will go check on the brothers to see if, well, if they're up to any any evil in Shechem. There's a spirit of that, actually, in the construction, grammatically, that's given to us here in this passage, the interaction between Joseph and Jacob. These are are men who have plans, and there are expectations for how those plans will go. Such are the plans of men. But there are troubles with the plans of men. You, You know this. All the plans that we make, you know, one of the major problems is, well, we don't know how they're going to go. <laughs> that's, a, that's always been a bummer to me, to start in on a plan where I have an assumption of how things are going to go and then it doesn't go that way. I'm limited in knowledge. You, you might even look at the interchange between father and son here and say, not only are they limited in knowledge, they're a little clouded in their judgment. This is not the smartest move that they've ever made to step into this. There's a kind of a lack of wisdom here. If it's pride and presumption that's actually driving something of Joseph, might we also argue that there's kind of a bentness towards his own selfish whims? Maybe him stepping out as this 17-year-old headed out to his brothers to see them in Shechem. Maybe this is the moment where they bow down to him. Maybe this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the revelation. Oh, it is the beginning of the fulfillment of the revelation, but not what you're thinking. At the very least, it's probably false expectations about how God's plan is going to work. That's where I often get myself in trouble. You know, God has given me a dream. Not really, but his word. 
And he says he's going to take care of me. And he says that he loves me. And he says he's going to provide for me. And I have very particular ideas of what that's going to look like. Very particular. And then, when those very particular ideas don't happen according to the promises of how I've conceived of his plan, I get very upset about it. But of course, he had never promised it in the way that I imagined it. At the end, his promises didn't match my expectations of how those promises would unfold. At the very least, might it be, this is the trouble that often comes with the plans of men. It's clear that what all is happening in this passage is we're setting up for what becomes, well, the tragedy, the nightmare. Jacob's plan, Joseph's expectations ultimately give way to the brother's plan. Yeah, that's right. The brother's plan really dominates the narrative, doesn't it? After Joseph gets there, after a long journey, first to Shechem and then later to Dothan, 10 more miles away, uh, Joseph, still a far ways off, his brothers see him. Probably, they probably recognize the coat, you know, the robe coming their directions, flapping in the wind. I, I imagine, you know, the clouds are parting and sun's coming in and he's walking across the field, you know, something along those lines. And the brothers there see him, and immediately, what are we told, verse 18, they conspire against him. Read plan there. It's, it's a malevolent plan, of course, but it's a plan. It's a plan that they have to adjust and tweak over the course of things, but it's, it's a plan to do him harm. Uh, notice, it's the exact opposite of the plan that Jacob gave Joseph to come and care for them. He was coming to see if they were at peace while they saw him coming and were making sure he would die. It's the very opposite of Joseph's expectations. This, this young lad full of pride and presumption coming with the expectations of glorious royalty and grandeur of having his brothers bow down to him in the future. What happens? He's stripped of his robe. Uh, read, read in that. His favoritism is taken away. His, his sense of an ornamental or royal robe, his dethronement is sort of taking place. Before the eyes of his brothers. The very opposite of what he would have expected to happen. Instead of his brothers bowing down to him. I don't think it's conjecture to say he was probably on his knees at some point. At mercy before his brothers. And I don't notice in the text. Correct me unless you see something different. I don't notice him rise in power. But I do notice him fall into slavery. Which is a worse condition than the one in which he came. And if that just weren't enough, the Ishmaelites show up. Here they are on their way to Egypt. The opposite of the chosen son, Isaac. His clan, the one that was ultimately rejected, is whom he gets sold into slavery to. The very opposite of the clan of blessing. This is not a good day in the life of Joseph. Let's suffice it to say that if you were to catch him at the end of this day, he would have said, it was a nightmare. It was nothing like the dream. Now, when you begin to understand some of what's going on in this passage, you begin to realize some of the motivations that are there. Not just of Joseph, but 
but actually what's indicated in his brothers here. And this is where we see tension. We see tension between the plans of men here. But we actually see tensions between the plan of men and the purposes of God. And we see what happens. What do I mean? Uh, Well, notice when Joseph comes, he's been calling them brothers this whole narrative long. I'm going to seek my brothers. I'm going to check on my brothers. Tell me where my brothers are. What do the brothers call him? Oh, here comes that dreamer. You can hear the mocking tone. You can hear the sneer. Here comes the one who thinks he's better than all of us. You remember what he told us about the sheaves, about the sun, moon, and stars thing? And then notice verse 20, their plot and how it unfolds. The way that they say it. Look at verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. Oh, that line says a lot, doesn't it? Oh, this is not just about Joseph being the favorite son of Jacob. This is about the revelation of God with regards to Joseph. This is about what God has said he will do with Joseph. You see, this is when the plans in the minds of the men come in conflict with the purposes of the Lord that will stand. We would have been okay if they had just said, you know, We'll see what will happen with his favored son. Yeah, Jacob probably should have never favored him anyway. (laughs) He was making all kinds of mistakes, following in the footsteps of his father, you know, generational sin. We would have said something like that. But the focus of the text is not on that. It's on the dream. They are angered about the choice in the revelation of God and his plan of redemption. If we get rid of Joseph... We'll get rid of the dream. Now, when you begin to see that all of the many plans of men, whether it's Jacob or whether it's Joseph or whether it's brothers, they all have a relationship with the plan behind the plan or the purpose underneath all the plans that ultimately moves the pieces on the chessboard of life. That really brings us to this second point, the purpose of God in this text. Now, now maybe as you looked over the text, you go, I don't recall reading anything about God. And you're, and you're right. You know, God is not mentioned at all in the verses that we looked at. From verses 12 to 36, it's as if he's, he's absent in terms of the word God. But isn't he everywhere all over the page? The fingerprints of God, if we could put it as such, playing out in all of the acts of providence. Take, for instance, that verses 15 to 17 when Joseph is on his journey to find the brothers. And you know what we're told in verse 15? He gets to Shechem, and what's he doing? What's he doing when he's in Shechem? Wandering around in a field. That's what it says. He's wandering around in a field. It has the notion of he's going in circles. He cannot find his brothers until he meets a man who is not named in the text, just a man, who asks him, what are you up to? Who are you seeking? And this man just happens to know where Joseph's brothers are. Oh, they're in Dothan, another 10 miles away from here. I just happened to overhear him say... That they were headed in that direction. Yeah, a lot of just so happens. Also known as God. 
uh, leading the movement of this text, directing the steps of Joseph. All that takes place in this passage is not by happen chance. We see it even in verses 21 to 28, don't we? In the minds of the brothers. You remember what they wanted to do to Joseph when he showed up? They wanted to kill him. Kill him and throw him in a pit. But over the course of time, what happened? Reuben objected. Uh, Judah winds up coming up with an idea of uh, of objecting to killing him uh, so that they could make a little profit and sell him off to the Israelites so that they could just send him away. He'll be as good as dead to us. We'll just get rid of him instead of kill him. That's all messy anyway. Really what we want to do is just get him out of our lives and be done with him. What's going on there but the Lord? Guiding and directing and the changing of minds and plans that ultimately get Joseph um, to the place and the position of where he needs him to be in order to do the work that he's called him to do? Is it, is it really by happen chance that at that moment it's the Ishmaelites, often also referred to in this text as the Midianites? Midian was the place where the Ishmaelites were, so a combination of two terms being used there. These two coming through, and where are they going? None other than Egypt. I don't know if you remember this, but um, Egypt becomes kind of a big deal in the next book, Exodus. Like the whole story of redemption flows out of it. This is the reason why. You, you do see what the text is saying. Well, I hinted at it at the beginning, but I'll, I'll, I'll remind you. you. You look like you're not certain, so I'll, I'll remind you. You see that wandering man in the field who told Joseph to go to Dothan led him there to the, to the changing of the minds of the men to not kill Joseph, but to sell him into slavery. And it just so happens that the Ishmaelites were there passing through on their way to Egypt that would ultimately lead Joseph to Egypt and would later, of course, lead his brothers to Egypt, which would later lead all of Israel to Egypt, which would later be the large nation that was brought out of the Exodus that ultimately accomplished the redemption of God's people in the promised land that completed the Old Testament that led to Jesus. You get it? It's a pretty big deal. And I'm going to say God was in that. I'm going to say that he was at work in this. You know, there's that old saying, the devil's in the details. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. God is in the details. He's in every detail of this passage. He's even in the details that make you want to cringe at the end of this passage when they conspire yet again to cover up their actions and fake Joseph's death. Can you imagine this? Uh, ripping apart and putting to, to shreds that coat of many color and then, then dipping it in goat's blood. And then we're told, if you can kind of read the text, it says they, they sent the coat back. Uh, the indication is they didn't go themselves, but they sent it by someone to, to say, go see if this, you know, ask him if this looks like his son's robe. They didn't want to be there to explore the questioning that might come uh, in that moment. They sent somebody else to do their dirty work. And in the midst of all of that, we see that everything goes according to what the brothers wanted to happen. Dad buys it. That son is dead, and he begins to grieve, and they're all collectively sighing relief and wiping a brow. We missed that one. We just missed that one. 
Except that what God was really doing was tying up a loose end from way back in Genesis 27. You remember in Genesis 27 that, that Jacob, well, he was a trickster back then. And he actually deceived his own father, Isaac, in his old age when he was blind. And I don't know if you remember, but do you remember how he deceived him? With a coat that was not his own. And with goat skins that he covered his arms with in order to get a blessing. And you see what's happening in this passage. A coat, goat's blood in order to remove the blessing from this favored one Joseph who's received the revelation of God. You see, even when they're at their worst, God is still in control of the story. He is still weaving it towards the purpose of himself that always stands. And you know they must have thought that they had gotten away with, well, murder. <laughs> oh, but this story was just getting started. In fact, little did they know they were merely the handmaiden of God. In the midst of all of their wicked machinations. Poor Joseph. What must he have been thinking when he was caravanning with those Israelites on his way to Egypt? You know, like, this is not how I thought it was going to go. This is not, this does not, this does, you know, what about the dream? What about the dream? Right? Wouldn't that have been Jacob's thought as well? Poor Jacob. He, no robes, just sackcloth and ashes by the end of this passage. Uh, weeping and crying out to the Lord. But we're told in verse 11 in Genesis 37 that after he had heard the dream that Joseph had had, he rebuked Joseph for it. But then it says he kept it in mind. He knew something was up. Don't you know that he must be asking, what about the dream? This is not the way it was supposed to go. The, the way that God had revealed it, what we, what we understood was going to happen, this dream has become a nightmare. It's become worse than we could have ever imagined. How might have Joseph felt? How might have Jacob felt? Well, I'd like to suggest it, it may have been something along the lines of what Jesus felt in a more intense and poignant way. When he gathered at that last supper with his disciples before his death. With his brothers. And he went to dip in the bowl with one of his brothers named Judas. And he looked him in the eye and this would be the one who would betray him into the ones who would kill him. It would have to be something like in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying and sweating great drops of blood and the Roman soldiers show up and Jesus, one of his brothers, comes and kisses him on the cheek as a means of which to hand him over into those who would kill him. 
It would have to be something like what Jesus experienced in the midst of having trumped up charges against him and having Pilate there just washing his hands clean like he had not done anything wrong whatsoever. It was as if they were going to get away with murder. In fact, the crowds were calling for that. They were calling for crucify him, crucify him. This dream of redemption that he had dreamed alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world. The beautiful glory of the unity that will one be the new heavens and the new earth. That ultimate plan, that dream of the gospel fulfillment, he would have to walk through the nightmare of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? You know what's amazing is little did all of them know. Judas, Pilate, the crowd. They were all handmaidens in the hand of God. Many were the plans of the men. But only the purpose of God will stand. Even the disciples missed it. After Jesus died, they gave up and went back to fishing. It would be Jesus who would have to show up after the third day in his resurrection, walking with a renewed, resurrected body, with the scars of his death still upon him. That we would see, well, this was just the beginning of the story, wasn't it? That the dream lives on. And the nightmare was only a passing shadow under greater glorious light still. Do you know that's really what your life is and the sufferings of your life if you're in Christ? Even the sins that you've committed, and, and haven't they been many? And aren't some of us in this room right now experiencing the devastating consequences of the decisions that we've made? And we think to ourselves, oh, uh, this is never going to get better. Well, if you're in Christ, I have hope for you. E even the sins that you've committed, even the wrongs that you've committed, aren't strong enough to forfeit the purpose of God for you in Christ. Isn't that remarkable? Are you, are you so grateful that your will is not so strong that it can derail the redemptive plan of God for you and all of his people. Aren't you grateful for that? Are, are you grateful that these brothers who were doing their best to destroy the redemption story of our God became mere puppets in his hand to accomplish the redemption of our God? Do you see it really is true? Genesis 50, 20, what they meant for evil, God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. But friends, this is the story of the Bible. This is the story of Joseph, but trust me, we've not finished this story. Oh yes, I'm not arguing that there's more Bible to come, but I am arguing that what the Bible reveals is of things still yet to come. Which means that you are in the midst of that story.
And I'm right there with you. Don't judge your story or the story of our time in the middle of it. The storylines of this story aren't tied up in time. They are tied up in eternity. And we have a ways, apparently, still to go. Let's trust the Lord for the weaving of His providential and redemptive tale. And let's rest in the assurance of all the things that make no sense now and of all of the brokenness that is the collateral damage that is our lives. Well, in the end, we'll be able to say, God meant it for good. So let's walk through whatever nightmare and let's face whatever consequence with the acknowledgement that the dream of the gospel lives on in the finished work of Jesus. Father in heaven, impress upon us this truth. Let the glory and the light of this be so beautiful to us, so brilliant that it captures our, our affections and our attentions and lets us be those who begin to walk and orient our steps towards its light. Or for those in this room that may be despairing for where it is they find themselves. Oh, Father, break in upon their hearts right now. And let them know that while there is life, there is hope. No one, if Christ has a hold of them, is ever too far gone. Even the sons of this passage, dark as they are in all of their actions, well, you wind up using them for amazing things in the days to come. Father, help us to not judge your story in the middle of it. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And trust you to tie up the storylines in only the way that you can when we meet you that day face to face. And we dwell forever in your presence in the glory of a new heavens and a new earth where all we will know it's the dream of the gospel. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.